Welcome to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, your tour guide on the journey to becoming a veterinarian. Listen along as we provide you with tips, tricks, and tales on applying to veterinary school. Welcome back to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino. Quick reminder to our audience that season three is filmed during social distancing, so the audio might sound a little different. Today, my guest is Dr. Monsell. She is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Florida Large Animal Clinical Sciences. Dr. Monsell, welcome to your first podcast. Thanks, Alex. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you because we have only had one other full-time real food animal veterinarian on the podcast, and that was Dr. Ray. He came on season one, so it's great to have somebody else who can talk to us about ruminants, and I know cows count as ruminants, so I'm really glad that you can uh, talk to us about that today. First, I'd love to ask you, where are you from? Because you have a fabulous accent. (laughs) I'm from Australia. I grew up there, and I went to vet school there. And And which which university is in Australia that that you went to? University of Melbourne. University uh, of Melbourne. In Victoria. Okay. And um, was that a program where you could go right out of high school, or did you need to do some college first? That was a program that you could go right out of high school when I went in. It's not anymore. So now it's set up the same as our programs are in the US. Okay. So you were a really young vet when you first got out of school. So, so I wonder if part of the reason why potentially you have a lot of degrees maybe could be because of that journey. So can we break down some of these degrees here? I see sure. that yep. you have your... BVS, so the Bachelor of Veterinary Science from University of Melbourne. Then how did you end up at University of Illinois for your internship? How did that happen? So really that happened because I got married to an American. Oh, and fun. he wanted to come back. He was from um, Arkansas, but he wanted to come back to a job in Illinois. And we, we moved there and there was an internship opened in production animal medicine right about the time that we moved. And that all worked out really nicely. That is right. Yeah. Now, Illinois versus Australia, which do you prefer? Ah, uh, <laughs> Illinois versus Australia. I have to say Australia. That's where my heart is. But I really, I really enjoyed everywhere we've lived in America. Okay. Yep. Uh, so a one-year internship in production animals. Yeah, it was in um, production animal medicine and surgery. So it's okay. a at both of those. How did you get started? Because so most of the kids in the States go into small animal medicine. So tell me how you even found production animal medicine. How was that even on your radar? So I, d- I grew up in a country town and I had horses on my childhood and was really into those. So I was a bit of a, a pony club nerd in Australia. Um, and I actually, when I went to vet school, I thought I probably wanted to be an equine veterinarian um but i had always I, I had a little bit of experience with cows i kept my horses on a dairy farm and had some experience there and i had always really enjoyed cows as well and when i got into vet school i discovered that cows were so awesome that i just wanted to keep working with them um, but i did go into mixed practice when i first graduated from vet school and i was in that in australia for two years Um, before I came here. 
Can you, so mixed animal practice, can you give that definition to our listeners? When we say mixed animal, what do we mean? So that can encompass a variety of different practice types, um, but it, it usually when people say mixed animal, they mean that there's a mixture of large and small animal species that are seen by that practice. Um, the practice that I was in was really a pretty true mixed animal practice. So we, probably on an income level, we had about 70% of our income was small animal and 30 was large, but probably on a time allocation basis, it was more like 50, 50. Um, and we yeah, saw a variety of large animal species and, and all the regular small animal species as well. Can you talk about the benefits of being a part of a mixed animal practice versus one that focuses solely on equine or production animals or small animals? Why would a student maybe love being a part of a mixed animal practice? I guess the things that are really um, awesome about being in a mixed animal practice is that you get to, um, I guess, you, you get to a lot of variety in your day. So you, you're not doing the same thing every single day or seeing the same types of cases every single day. You get lots and lots of variety. You get to be in the office um, or in the, in the practice um, some parts of the day or some days of the week and then you get to be out on the road um, in the fresh air, seeing clients out on their farms for some of the week. So you get kind of the best of both worlds. Oh, that does sound real. I do like that idea of you kind of, you're not stuck in one location. You're not stuck in the office. You do get to go out and get to be outside, um, you know, with those herd animals. So that sounds, that sounds wonderful. So you went from vet school to some mixed animal practice, then the internship, then your residency was also at the University of Illinois. So tell me what made you decide I want to go for the residency. So I, I really loved my internship, um, had a great time and I just, I felt like that was what I wanted to do with my career. And I also found that I really loved teaching during my internship and I thought that, I wasn't sure at that time, but I thought maybe I wanted an academic career um, and certainly I needed a residency to do that. So we went Absolutely. from there. That makes sense. Yeah. And then, so you passed your boards. So yep. now what is your diplomat title? So I'm a, I'm a diplomat of the um, College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and in large animal. Okay, so you're a large animal internist, but yep. would you say that you feel just as comfortable with horses as you do with cows? So I would say when I finished my boards in my residency that I felt um, fairly equally comfortable with both species types, but I have been doing ruminant exclusive practice for a long time now. And I, I um, probably wouldn't be the veterinarian that I would call to see my horse, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yes. that makes total sense. And then tell me, it seems like you got your master's at the same time that you did your residency, is that right? I did. So some, some universities offer a dual residency master's program. So there's even a couple that do dual residency PhD programs. And I did a dual residency master's. And what was your research focus on? So it was focused on factors that um, affect colostrum quality in dairy cattle. Remind me what the colostrum is. The colostrum is the very first milk 
or secretion from the udder at birth and it has really high levels of antibodies in it that protect the newborn baby from infection. Okay, this is going to sound really millennial of me and I don't really associate <laughs> with the millennial, but do people use the colostrum for skin products? Because that to me sounds like something, if it's full of antioxidants, I feel like people would want to be rubbing that all over themselves. People use it for all sorts of weird things. <laughs> like there's, they put it in eye, like for eye treatments, people put it on their skin, people put it in like high protein bodybuilding milkshakes and things like that. So, so this is in the 90s that you were getting all of these degrees done, but then fast forward almost 10 years later and you do a PhD. So talk us through how we got to the PhD portion. So after I finished my residency in Illinois, I stayed there as a clinical instructor for a little while. And then I um, was still thinking I wanted a career in academia and that probably a PhD was also something that I should undertake to, to um, be productive in that career. And I was really interested in mycoplasma mastitis, which was a problem that was just becoming really prevalent in the US right then in dairy cows. And so there was um, a professor here at UF that was working on mycoplasma and I came here to work with her and did my PhD with her. That was Dr. Mary Brown. Oh, Dr. Brown, who's still yep. here for yep. sure. Okay, so then can you just, like, what is mastitis? Because that's something that I feel like the vet students learn a lot about. So can we go over what is it? Because I, well, and then I would say too, like, I feel, isn't mass, would you say mastitis is as common as colic in horses and parvo and dogs? Like, are those things that we can relate to each other? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good analogy. It's a, it's a pretty common disease, probably more common than colic in horses is, for example. Um, so it's, it's more of a problem in dairy cattle than it is in beef cattle, but it's um, inflammation caused by an infection in the, in the udder, so in the mammary gland. And okay. um, then the, the gland gets all swollen and painful um, and you know, it needs to be treated, usually with antibiotics, but not always. Is it something that a veterinarian could tell just by looking at the udder? A lot of the time, yeah. But, but certainly we can tell it by looking at the milk coming from the udder. So the milk starts to look abnormal. Okay, so you mentioned antibiotics. Mm -hmm. you, might, you know, you're gonna treat mastitis with antibiotics. And all the time, you know, we hear about milk, you know, without hormones or antibiotics and, mm -hmm. and beef. So, and I've had Dr. Ray explain this, but I think it's worth explaining again. Can you talk about how animals sometimes need antibiotics? They sure do. You know, just like you and me, we get diseases caused by bacteria sometimes. And um, that if we're not able to treat those with antibiotics, sometimes the only other choice is to, to put the animal to sleep, you know, if, if we can't fix the disease. Um, so, or to, or to, you know, if she's a adult cow, sometimes that animal will end up being sold for meat instead of staying in the dairy herd because we can't fix the disease. So, um, though, you know, if we have a disease like mastitis is a good example, it's usually caused by bacteria that we can treat really effectively with antibiotics. And so, 
Um, even if we're doing everything that we can to prevent it from happening, um, we sometimes still get it and, and yeah, we infuse antibiotics into the mammary gland of the cow. And then that cow stays in a special isolated hospital environment and she lives there for the time that she's been treated and she lives there for a period after the treatment's finished, which is called the withdrawal period for the antibiotics. Um, and then her milk gets tested at the end of that to make sure that there's no antibiotic residues left in her milk. And if she's clear of antibiotic residues, then she can go back to the main dairy. Okay, so folks at home don't need to be worried that their milk has antibiotics in it because the cows have to go through a certain process to make sure it's all out. They absolutely do. And yeah, it's not legal for dairy farmers to have, you know, to treat a cow without removing her from the, the string of cows that are being used to make milk for human consumption. Um, and actually every single tanker of milk that gets picked up from every single dairy gets tested for antibiotics, just, just in case somebody made a mistake, but it gets tested anyway. Um, and so, yeah, you, you can feel really comfortable that there's not going to be antibiotics in your milk when you drink it. Um, this is different than, say, an organic herd where antibiotics are completely prohibited for, for use on organic farms. So they can't treat cows for any diseases that, that you would normally use antibiotics for on organic farms. Okay, I might be, I might be jumping to conclusions here, but then are we potentially saying at an organic farm, if a cow gets mastitis, that cow is just getting put down? So that sometimes happens. A lot of, a lot of the times we can try and treat them without antibiotics. So we can do things like put, you know, warm compresses on the udder. We can give the cow pain medicine because some pain medicines we're allowed to use on organic farms um, and just wait and see what happens with the mastitis. And sometimes that works fine. Um, but, but we do sometimes have cows that we can't recover with that sort of treatment. And um, usually they don't end up being put down. Usually what happens is they end up being sold okay. um, for, for meat or some organic dairies will have um, a, a companion farm that, that is not organic and they'll send those cows to that farm that they work with. Oh, that's so, fun. So that okay. works. That works pretty well. Um, and you know they they focus really heavily on those organic dairies on on doing everything that they can to stop yeah stop the infections from happening so that they don't have to deal with that sort of scenario sure sure I, they yeah. sound like they definitely need to be more proactive because they can't be reactive with antibiotics if something goes wrong okay let's talk about day in the life of you as a production animal veterinarian, I know that you do have teaching responsibilities, but if we can talk about for students who might be interested in, as, in a career as a production animal vet, what can they expect? What is it like? So Ed, that varies a lot on what part of the country you're in and what sort of production animal practice you do. But what I do is I'm a dairy veterinarian. So I'm working with dairy cows and especially with dairy calves and the calf rearing programs that different farmers have. Um, and my day will vary from anything that, that, that might be um, a scheduled visit that we're gonna go and do some um, routine evaluation of animal health on that farm or maybe some preventive health procedures like 
um, taking horns off, so disbudding. Um, we might be doing vaccinations or checking animals for parasites or things like that and treating them um, to, you know, all sorts of emergency visits, depending on, on uh, what, what, I'm, what I'm scheduled for that day. Talk to me about dairy cattle personalities. Like, yeah, how, like, how would you describe them? So they are really inquisitive and you probably, everybody's heard about the curious cow. Well, that's true. They are really curious. I've never heard of the curious yeah. cow. I've heard yeah. about the curious it's cow. It's a children's book. You should oh. look it up. Yeah. The curious cow. Got it. Um, but yeah, it's a, they are really curious. They love to investigate new things. Um, they are herd animals. So if, if somebody gets frightened or panics about something, everyone tends to panic first and then stop and think later. So you can have everybody go running away from you, if, you know, if they get scared or something like that. Um, but yeah, they do, they have quite, they have very individual personalities. So some you know, just like, a lot of our other animal species, some of them will be uh, much bolder and more adventurous than others. And some are really quiet and timid and love to have their head scratched and just just like to, yeah, just be calm and chill out. Um, so that, yeah, they're quite, they're, they're quite, it varies a lot on um, just like most of our other species. Sure. So dairy cattle would be all lady cows. Do you ever work with the, the bull side of it, of making sure that we continue to have cows and the calves and the repro side? So most of the dairies that I work with use artificial insemination. So they buy semen from, from bull studs that raise the bulls and collect the semen from them. And, and that way we can use um, semen in our breeding programs that, that help us select for very specific traits that we're looking for in the breeding program. Um, and we can use an animal of better genetics than we'd be able to actually afford to buy if we wanted to buy that bull. So speaking of gender and lady cows, mm -hmm. I know that uh, female veterinarians on the food animal production animal side might be a little bit less. You, might, you potentially might be in a minority. That, that, that could be changing with how veterinary medicine is moving um, right now. Can you speak to that at all? Is that what it's like in Australia as well as the United States? What is it like to be a female food animal, production animal veterinarian? I would say that that has changed completely in my lifetime. So both in Australia and here, when I graduated from vet school, um, female production animal vets would have been in the uh, vast minority and that has been gradually changing this whole time. And there's tons and tons of, um, of female food, food animal vets now, um, probably more in the, in, in the dairy and mixed large animal practice, beef, beef kind of mixed practice and a little bit, there still seems to be more gender inequality in the kind of feedlot, pure beef cattle practice through the the Great Plains and Western sort of inner mountain regions of the U.S. When I look at those practices, there's less there's less females practicing out in that area. But certainly, there's getting to be more and more. So it's changing all over the country. 
you know, if you talk to female veterinarians that have been out in food animal practice for a long time, they will all tell you of instances that they've faced where people have uh, perhaps been less welcoming or said, no, I want, I want a guy and not, can, can I have Dr. Martin come out instead of you or um, something like that. But I think that is also really changing and becoming less and less of an issue. And um, certainly I, I, from what I've observed in my own experience, I think uh, as soon as farmers realize that you know what you're doing and you can get the job done, that they're, they're um, more than happy to have you as their veterinarian and, and um, sort of suddenly decide that their gender really doesn't matter. talk about the shortage of rural veterinarians. So that's a big ticket item right now, um, especially just in the news and folks putting out studies that there's not enough rural vets and folks don't want to go out and live in rural areas. And potentially you might have an opinion on that as a production animal veterinarian, but also for my students who are getting ready to have interviews for vet school, this is something that could come up. So what is, what's your take on the lack of rural veterinarians? So you're right, there is a lack of veterinarians in some areas of the country, in some uh, rural areas. And, and those, there'll often be veterinary practices in those areas. They just, um, there's not enough veterinarians to serve and they often have trouble attracting um, attracting new graduates to come to those areas of the country and then keeping them long-term. And actually retention of female rural veterinarians is worse than it is of males. And I, I, it seems like a lot of that, when my, one of my organizations that I'm in is um, AABP, which is the American Association of Bovine Practitioners. And they've been digging into that a little bit. And they think it, it seems to mainly be for lifestyle reasons that people decide after four or five years of living in a you know a 2000 person town in out in the boonies that they don't that's just not for them long term or not where they want to bring up their kids or that those sorts of things i i would i would say that that can be a wonderful fantastic life and i i have lots of friends that live in small rural towns and wouldn't change it for a world the world and they're quite happy to live there and bring their families up there and and um, make a life there but it's not for everybody um, and it it does become a decision for students when they're graduating from vet school if they thought that they were going to be food animal practitioners and all of a sudden they've got a spouse that wants to be a cardiologist in Chicago or something like that it, it suddenly becomes like a, a they, they have to reevaluate and decide where they're going to go and how they can accommodate both, both sort of lifestyles. So it's definitely a real thing that there is a shortage and students yep. need to be considering what kind of lifestyle are they looking for? Yep. What kind of lifestyle is their potential partner or current partner looking for? Yep. And then maybe the AVMA or folks who are hiring out there have to think of other incentives to have folks want to go out and, and live in a rural environment. Or maybe it's a program where you do it for four years. I know that we have some of those loan repayment mm -hmm. programs where if you're a rural vet for a little bit, you, you get your student loans paid off. Yep. But that'd and be the problem because then they don't stay. They might not stay. 
yeah but i mean i think some people do stay right they they move out there and they they think oh, i might do this for four years and then see how i'm going and they just love it they fit right into the practice i would i would say that going to a practice where you have really good mentorship um and you can see things in that community that that feel right to you so you would fit as a person in that community that there's the sort of lifestyle there and there's the sort of um potential to make friends there that you you can yeah that you would fit in there and that that seems to if people can find that community then they tend to stay but if they go to a community that they just don't have what they need to be happy in life in then you know three or four years later they're going to be looking for somewhere else yeah and that would be the case with anybody you know whether it's rural yeah. city it does Depends. To me, it does sound quite romantic to move out to a rural area, small town. You're probably a staple of the community if you are that veterinarian. So it does sound like there can be, there are, of course would be challenges if you're the only vet, you know, within mm -hmm. miles, but it also sounds like it could be quite lovely to disconnect. So if you're a student who's listening and you're ready to go out into a nice open area and be a a leader in a small community, a rural veterinarian might be the perfect job for you. Okay, Dr. Monsell, I always like to ask our guests, what personality type of a student do you think, or what personality traits does a student need to be successful in your line of work? Certainly, the, the students that do the best in my area are students that are not afraid to get dirty. Um, that's really important. So if you can't deal with getting cow poo on your arm, don't, you, you probably can just, hate it. Just, just cross food animal veterinarian off your, <laughs> off your list. Um, but I think like in any probably avenue of, of veterinary medicine that, um, that somebody who it, who's willing to go out and get the clinical skills that they um, that they really need and work hard at it are, are the ones that are, end up being really successful and get the good jobs after graduation um, and that that encompasses not just what you get out of classes in vet school so that means doing uh, picking externships where you get some really good practice um, outside of vet school with practicing veterinarians and um, even we encourage a lot of our students that are interested in production animal medicine to go and work on farms for for um, part of that first summer of vet school if they haven't done that before because it gives them a really good insight into that industry um, so so having being willing to go out and sort of get that extra experience so that you're really comfortable with the industry is is important. I would think not only would you become more comfortable, but when you work with those clients in the future, they'll be more comfortable with you if you can say, I have done this. I've worked on a farm. I understand where you're coming from. It makes them more empathetic and relatable, I would assume. Yeah, that's that's really um, for sure. And, and another thing that I think there's a actually really great opportunity for veterinarians to be involved in more is on the um, the business side of large farms. So a lot of large farms are starting to employ veterinarians as part of their management teams. And they, there's 
a lot of positions out there. And if you have something like an MBA as well as your vet degree or even just some, you know, some basic business experience, um, that would that really really makes you more competitive for those sorts of jobs. So um, that, that's a an area that we don't really necessarily think of as being, you know, this sort of tr traditional veterinary area, but there's more and more positions like that becoming available. Oh, I love that. So students be on the radar and um, the lookout for non-traditional veterinary jobs in each field and also be in tune with maybe staying on job, job boards to see what's getting posted, talking to your veterinarians to find out what options are available. Dr. Monsell, finally, what advice do you have for pre-vet students who are maybe in an application cycle or getting ready to apply, or maybe they just found this as an option for a career? What advice do you have before they arrive at vet school? So I would say if, if, you're, if you're applying here at University of Florida and you're in Gainesville already, so you're undergrad here, come and meet the faculty in the area that you're interested in. So um, see if there's something that you can do to, to, you know, volunteer on a project or something like that, that you actually get to, to sort of get those contacts and get your foot in the door a little bit. Would you recommend them keeping, you know, Australia and the European schools as options? That's a good question, and and absolutely, if it if it's financially feasible for you to to do that, um, I think you get a great education in the the accredited. So that if you look at the AVMA accredited um, schools in Australia and in the UK and in Europe, um, that they you get an awesome education at all of those, and you get a really great life experience at the same time. So. If that's on the cards for you, then absolutely. Yep. That would be a cool experience. And Australia is such an awesome place. You, you know, I would never discourage anybody from going there. And before I let you go, can you teach us um, maybe a cool Australian slang phrase that maybe we're not aware of? Uh, have you ever have you ever heard? Have, have you got a bee in your bonnet about that? Uh, does that mean are you upset? Yeah. Okay, have you, they say that in Australia. Yeah, they do. So you get to be in your bonnet, yeah. Okay, so students, don't have a bee in your bonnet about production animal medicine. It sounds like a wonderful career, lots of opportunities, plenty to do, and lots of variety. Dr. Monsell, thanks for being on the podcast today. You're welcome, Alex. Thank you. And I'm Alex Avellino, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>